The holidays are a moment of togetherness and joy and a reminder of how tradition creates happy and fulfilled communities. Make this holiday season patriotic with a visit to National Harbor and its stunning new Spirit Park. Marvel at one of the largest American flags in the region and beautiful displays of American art. Make this holiday season the most meaningful of all at National Harbor. Learn more at nationalharbor.com dash spirit park. Luther, I think, gave us the formula for how to handle these things. It's you stand on Scripture alone and let the chips fall where they may. We're on the we're on the same side. We may disagree on certain theological issues, yeah, but, I, but I, we're I, on I, the I, same I, side. No, not at all. And, and look how nice we are each other. No, I enjoy this and uh, appreciate all you do out there for the Lord. It's like you know what. What are you doing? You're spending all your time trying to destroy another Christian because you don't understand what's going on when you should be out there winning people for Jesus. Uh, we're not supposed to be blind sheep. We're supposed to be Koreans. And so just to, no matter who it is, this goes for everybody. Um, you're, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of yours. I'm a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. I, I love watching you and I love hearing what you have to say. And I think you're a, a great blessing to the body of Christ. Well, welcome everybody to Conversations with Jeff. We're back for round two this week with Andy Woods. And last week we had Brandon Howes and we covered a lot of the stuff with Shepherd's Conference and that sort of thing. But we've got Andy this week and uh, I believe, Andy, I believe your show on Conversations is the most watched show we've got so far. So wel- welcome back again. Well, that's, I'm good to, it's good to hear that. I looked at it one time and it said it had 666 views. So I don't know if that's uh, was six six six. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, you never know. <laughs> so, but um, but yeah. But I'm I'm thankful to have you back on, and you, we can kind of jump into some new topics and that sort of thing. Right on. Well, I'm hoping someone else will watch it and get off that six six six. I know. At least get it up to six six seven. So. <laughs> yeah. So, well, you know, I, I know last week when I had Brandon on, we really dive, dove in really deep into the whole, the whole Shepherds Conference thing and that sort of thing. So I don't want to have to, like, rehash everything, but I kind of wanted to get your initial reaction to that whole Shepherds Conference Q&A with MacArthur and Dever and Moeller and all those guys. Well, to me, the most uh, self-indicting thing, you know, that happened was that uh, Q&A panel that you're talking about. And the statement where John MacArthur got the microphone and basically made the statement that I don't oppose error uh, as long as it comes from my friends. I'm kind of paraphrasing. But that statement was so self-indicting. To be honest with you, I thought it was fake news the first time I saw it, like someone who dubbed his voice in there or something. But obviously when you watch it a few times, it's obviously authentic. And he was sort of bridging, a, looked like he was bridging a gap between Al Mohler versus Phil Johnson. You know, Al Mohler sort of sticking up for social justice, the best I can tell. Phil Johnson criticizing it, and MacArthur kind of bridged the opposites. 
And I don't know, the whole thing was very sad because, you know, this is supposed to be his 50th year of faithfulness. That's what they're supposed to be celebrating. And he makes a statement like that. And John MacArthur kind of has gained the reputation of the guy that opposes error. You know, he takes on things that most people won't take on. And a lot of us have really liked him, you know, because of that. But then he comes out and says, I don't oppose error as long as it's coming from my friends because I don't want to be an island. And, you know, I couldn't help thinking of Galatians 2 verse 11 where, you know, Paul confronted Peter to his face. And I, I get the impression that Peter and Paul were probably pretty good friends. But when it came to truth, uh, Paul took a stand, you know, related to legalism and what Peter was doing. And I also think of Jude verse three and also a little bit into verse four, which says earnestly contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. It doesn't say contend for it as long as it's not your friends that are promoting a mistake or an error. And I don't know, I, I, th- I think about this whole social justice movement the way probably you look at it, that it's a top-to-down reshuffling of Christianity in almost every area. And so to, an A, invite people on the stage like that, that promote that stuff, and B, to make the statement that it's okay if they promote it because they're my friends and I won't oppose it, to me it was sort of a sad uh, indictment. Uh, on John MacArthur's ministry at a time when they're supposed to be celebrating his faithfulness. So I don't know. It was just one of those things that um, it kind of takes your breath away. And I just say to the Lord, Lord, I don't want to end up like that. Yeah. Now, what, what do you, what do you think? What do you think he should have said or should have done? Obviously instead, what, what would have been the right thing for him to do if he didn't want to, let's say either offend his, his friends or completely cast them aside. What, what should have his response been? Well, number one, I don't think he should have invited them there. If, if they have that much baggage, um, it doesn't matter if they agree with him on a few soteriological points or not. And number two, you don't make a statement and leave it, leave it hanging out there as precedent. You know, because the things John MacArthur does, whether John MacArthur realizes it or not, are followed by people. I mean, he's very popular. His study Bible, you know, is in almost every Christian home. Uh, He's all over the radio. He's written commentaries. And people look to him as a leader. He may not see himself that way. He may not want that position. But he's got it. And you don't make a, a statement as a leader that gives precedent that error is somehow overlooked as long as it comes from his friends. So... I don't think he should have invited them there in the first place. He shouldn't have even been on the same stage with them. And he should have made the same, uh, you know, here I am kind of doing some Monday morning quarterbacking. You know, it's easy for me to say this, but, uh, you know, I think he should have stuck with what he said earlier related to social justice, where he condemned it. He said it was a threat to the gospel and he should have stuck with that that line and that verbiage and for him to say, well, it's okay if it comes from my friends subtracts and ameliorates from everything he said earlier against social justice. So he shouldn't have had those people with him on stage a and B he should have stuck with his original statement concerning social justice. And he cert, you know, what he sort of did is he set up a pragmatic uh, hermeneutic. In other words, I don't want to be an Island. I don't want to be, I don't want to have a Masada complex. I don't want to, you know, build a silo. I don't want to be all by myself. 
And that's not how you deal with truth. I mean, you stand for truth. Now, whether you become a silo or whether you get cut off, you know, that's that's in the sovereignty of God. Uh, but our job is not to try to figure out what's going to make us, you know, more compatible with folks. Our job is to stand for truth. And then whether we actually become a silo or get cut off or, you know, kind of become a Masada or whatever, uh, that's that's something that the Lord ascertains. I mean, we're not told to stand if it, unless, you know, it's going to cost you something. We're just told to stand and let the results, you know, uh, fall into the hands of God. And if you kind of look at what MacArthur did versus uh, I've been studying recently the prophets of Baal and their confrontation with Elijah, uh, you don't, you know, MacArthur really did not come across like an Elijah in that exchange. Now, other times in his career, he has come across like an Elijah. That's why a lot of us have been sort of endeared to him, but he didn't come across like an Elijah there. He, he didn't say, you know, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? You know, if, if, if the Lord is the Lord, follow him, etc. And uh, anyway, those are some of my general thoughts on the whole thing. Yeah, for sure. And then you had kind of mentioned uh, the relationship that like Peter and Paul had and how Paul confronted Peter for, for his error and that sort of thing. One of the things that I feel like has been the response defending guys like MacArthur and Moeller and Duncan and all these guys is that they're great men of God. They've preached the gospel. They're good theologically. They're on all these different kind of platforms and that sort of thing. So it's almost like not that we should give them a pass, but we shouldn't be confronting them publicly to make them look bad. when we're when we're trying to decide, do we confront somebody? Do we not confront somebody? Do we do it publicly? Do we do we do it privately? How do we decipher what's the right avenue to go? Well, you know, Peter, and this this is the James White thing reincarnated. I mean, this was the same argument related to James White, related to the interfaith dialogue with the jihadi uh, uh, imam. You know, a lot of people said, well, James White has a great track record. And I think really what they mean by that is I agree with James White on certain narrow soteriological points like Calvinism, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point today, or Lordship Salvation. And because he's good on that, we can overlook something over here that he's doing. And, you know, when Paul confronted Peter to his face, Peter had a pretty good track record. You know, Peter, you know, was the guy that preached on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people got saved, Acts 2. Peter's the guy that led the uh, first Gentile, a man named Cornelius, to Christ. I mean, Peter's like the main guy in Acts 1 through 10. And if anybody had a track record, it was Peter. And Paul in Galatians 2, verse 11, you know, he doesn't say, uh, gee whiz, Peter's got a pretty good track record, so he gets a pass here. So I don't know, this idea that you give people a pass based on their track record, I just don't really, I mean, I understand how pragmatically that works in terms of ministry relationships, but I don't see any apostolic mantle or authority for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so um, kind of transitioning into kind of the main topic that I kind of wanted to to talk to you about was uh, essentially about the gospel and about, um, and especially about lordship salvation and that sort of thing. Cause I grew up with, within the John MacArthur crowd and he's very, very staunch when it comes to Cal- both Calvinism and lordship salvation. And it seems like there's this divide 
And to a certain degree, I feel like both sides of the debate say that this is an essential gospel issue that we need to make sure that we're getting right. So I kind of wanted to, you know, talk it out with you and that sort of thing. So to start like bare basics, bare bones, that sort of thing, I wanted to give you a chance to share, okay, what is the the essential gospel that we need to make sure that we all agree on and understand and we're all preaching? Well, I mean, the first thing we have to do is is figure out the three tenses of salvation, because that's half the battle right there. And I believe that there are three tenses. There's justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification, the past tense of sin. Sanctification, the present. Uh, uh, let me rephrase that. Justification, the past tense of salvation. Sanctification, the present tense of salvation. Glorification, the future tense of salvation. I have been saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. So when we get into the subject of lordship salvation, really the whole issue is tense number one. You know, what exactly does the lost sinner have to do to be made right with God in terms of justification? And the debate isn't about, is Jesus Lord? I mean, we all know he's Lord. He always has been, he always has been Lord, he always will be Lord. The debate is what does the lost sinner have to do to be justified before God? And Lordship Salvation, as much as they deny this, teaches a doctrine that you have to believe in Christ alone. So far, so good. But then they throw in a but there, and they say you have to be, you have to either at that moment or be willing to submit every, every area of your life to the Lordship of Christ, which to my camp is adding a work alongside faith alone for justification. And it doesn't really take long to see that they're saying this. I mean, I've got several John MacArthur quotes. Uh, Some of them I won't read because they're probably too long, but if folks would look at the gospel, according to Jesus, page 140, uh, he says eternal life is a free gift. But then he goes on and he says, but that doesn't mean there is no cost. Then he says, salvation is free and costly. Then he says, we pay the ultimate price for salvation. And then he says, uh, implicit obedience, full surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Nothing else will qualify as saving faith. And to me, that's a redefinition of faith. And I think it's John Piper who said there's, He takes faith, and he says that word faith includes a hundred things. Well, no, it doesn't. (laughs) Faith is basically what it means is trust or reliance upon. And once the lost sinner does that, uh, they're justified before God. Now, the whole walk of discipleship and obedience to the Lordship of Christ So those are things that start to get worked out in the middle tense of salvation. But the moment you drag things that are necessary to grow in the middle tense of salvation into justification, which is what Lordship Salvation is doing, you just preached a different gospel. And you're coming under the curse of Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. So as as much as people want to portray this as just semantics and all these kinds of things, I don't think it's semantics at all, and I think it's actually the kind of thing that Paul didn't want Peter to miscommunicate 
in Galatians 2, and that's why he confronted him to his face. I mean, to Paul, this was a pretty big subject. So I don't know if that helps. Yeah. Well, you know, like, I feel like there's, you know, obviously there's passages that, you know, both sides cite in order to justify their position. You know, like there's Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which says that it's not by works. And then there's other passages that, that are, you know, commanding people to repent of their sins and turn away from their sins and follow Christ and that sort of thing. So I guess let, let's jump into repentance and A, is that required for salvation? And B, what does that even mean, uh, from a, you know, justification standpoint? Well, I believe repentance correctly defined is required for justification. And the reason I think that is because of the meaning of repentance. It comes from the Greek word metanoeo. Uh, meta you recognize as in the word change as in your cancer has metastasized you know from one part of your body to another to another and then noeo from the word noeo we get the word notion or from the mind in fact i think the greek word noose if i'm not mistaken if i'm pronouncing that right actually means mind and so meta noeo literally means change of mind and that's what happens when you believe when you believe, you know, I, I, when I can very clearly remember how I got saved at age 16. Uh, I had been trusting in myself and my works. I heard the gospel, and I began, instead of relying upon myself, I relied upon the finished work of Christ. And the moment I did that, which is what I think believe means, means to trust, my mind changed. And so I take faith and repentance as actually synonyms, as long as it's understood that repentance needs to be understood according to its Greek meaning. And the problem is most people don't do that. They think it means don't smoke or chew or go with girls who do, or, or you've got to really feel, you've got to cry a river. You know, I'm not really against any emotion when people come to Christ, but that's not a requirement. In fact, in Greek, there's a whole different word for that. It's meta-melomai. You know, you recognize the word mellow, as in we tell hyper kids, you know, to mellow out, you know, change of emotion. That's not what the word repentance is. It's metanoeo. So, I don't know, I hope I'm helping a little bit, but when you understand what repentance actually means according to the Greek term, it actually becomes a synonym for faith. Mm -hmm. So, I don't think it's possible for somebody to truly have trusted in Christ without simultaneously repenting. Um, Lewis Berry Chafer in his systematic theology makes the point that the two rightfully interpreted and understood are actually synonymous with each other when we're dealing with this issue of tense one justification. Right. And so, you know, I feel like, you know, cause there's, there, again, there's certain passages that, you know, people in, you know, what we'll to say like my camp of dealing with Lordship salvation often cite and that sort of thing. And like, there's, like Acts 2.38, where Peter's saying to repent and um, and each of you will be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will mm. receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you would be saying that that's basically a synonym to faith or trust, essentially? Yeah, he doesn't say here, he, he says repent. I think the Greek there is ice, mm -hmm. E-I-S, because of the forgiveness of your sins. So... You're, it, the idea is not so much that you are um, turning away from sin. Now, 
people get really upset when I say that. What do you mean you're not supposed to turn away from sin? Well, uh, how much does a lost sinner understand about that? Uh, they don't even know what sin is, most likely. Um, what God calls them to do is turn towards something, repent towards something, trust in Christ. And then once, you're, once you've trusted in Christ, now you've got the Holy Spirit inside of you. And I think the Holy Spirit does a pretty good job of convicting people of personal sins in the middle tense of salvation. So uh, taking a look here at Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think what it's the ice there is better translated because of the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, the forgiveness of your sins and the reception of the Holy Spirit, and then also following through with water baptism are not the requirements for justification. They're the result of justification. They're not the root of justification or the fruit of justification. And Lordship Salvation doesn't make that distinction. They take stuff that's supposed to be the fruit of and they very sloppily make it the fruit of, and they end up giving to the lost person um, a gospel that's basically very works-oriented. Yeah, and so so then, you know, if we're jumping into, you know, works being a result of salvation, which I would totally agree with, um, oftentimes they'll say, well, yes, works don't uh, make you justified, but they're proof that you're justified. So if you don't have the works, thus you're not justified. So it's kind of playing it backwards to a certain degree what would be your response to that kind of a thing yeah what we were talking about earlier was front loading mm -hmm. in other words works plus faith equals justification and then what they do also is if they, they do what's something called backloading in other words if you don't have enough works then you never really were justified well um how many works do you have to do exactly that's very subjective and uh what that does is it destroys the assurance of salvation. If I believe that, I'm going to spend my whole life wondering if I've done enough good works to prove I'm justified, since the amount of good works one must do is never, it's it's not an objective quantification. And I could show you examples of people in the Bible. Now, I'm not promoting this at all. I call this an unfortunate possibility of people that they look to me like they're justified, but I'm not seeing a lot of works. Um, if you go into the Old Testament, you know, you've got guys like Saul, uh, Solomon. I don't think there's any doubt that these early kings of Israel were, were justified before God. You've got a guy named Lot in the Old Testament. He's clearly justified according to Second Peter 2. Uh, verses 7 and 8, and then you get into the New Testament, and Paul in Colossians 4 talks about Demas having loved this present world has deserted me. Well, people say, well, Demas wasn't even a Christian. Uh, I think you'll find that in Colossians 4, and folks might want to double-check it over in 2 Timothy 4 also. And people say, well, Demas obviously wasn't a Christian. Well, why would Paul put him on the missionary team? which he does in Colossians 4, if there was some kind of doubt whether he was justified. So as much as it's unfortunate, you've got examples in the Bible of people who clearly are justified before God, yet they don't seem to be producing a lot of good works. And I think that's the whole point of the warning in the book of 1 Corinthians. 
First Corinthians three verse fifteen clearly talks about a man who's saved, but he stands before the Lord at the bema seat judgment of Christ, and his works are exposed as wood, hay, and stubble. And it says he himself will be saved as though escaping through the flames. And you've got a number of people in the hall of faith, like Samson and Jephthah, and we could go right on down the list, that really didn't finish well. Um, you know, Noah, how well did he finish? You know, he was drunk, you know, in the post-flood world. Yet clearly he was justified before God. So, you know, at some point you have to figure out, are you going to follow this Calvinistic doctrine of the perseverance of the saints? In other words... If there's not enough fruit, you never were justified. Or are you going to follow the Bible and acknowledge that there's possibilities where people on the outside could really be lacking in works, but clearly they're justified before God. So I, I reject front-loading just as much as I reject back-loading of the gospel. And I, I don't really call myself a Calvinist anymore. Mm-hmm. I used to call myself that. I just call myself a Biblicist. And let me be clear, uh, we're not promoting this when I talk this way. It's not like, yay, let's all go live like that. I would describe it as an unfortunate possibility. And people that go that direction suffer greatly in the Christian life and in the life to come in terms of embarrassment at the Bama seat, judgment of Christ, but they could still be in heaven. Does that help at all? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, and, I, and so kind of going along with that a little bit, I wanted to ask you about there's both James 2 – and then also Matthew 7, that are both, it seems to be talking about, you know, works prove your faith, and that if you don't have the works, then your faith is dead. How how does that, in in within your theological perspective, play out uh, with kind of what you were just talking about? Well, probably the biggest mistake that people make with James is they define the word death according to the 21st century medical definition in other words it's an anachronistic which means out of time understanding of death death in their minds means non-existence so faith without works is dead means if you don't have enough good works your faith never existed and yet when you get into the biblical definition of death not the 21st century definition but the first century definition is death in the bible never means non-existence In other words, people die all of the time. People have been dying since the beginning of human history, and yet they don't stop existing. They're alive right now, you know, in heaven or hell, depending on their standing before God. So when it says faith without works is dead, it's not saying faith without works doesn't exist. What it's saying is faith without works is your faith is still there. It's just not good for anything. It may be good to get your fire insurance paid up and get into heaven, but God can't productively use your life, you know, to bless other people. And when you look at some of the internal clues in the book of James, you know, for example, it keeps calling them brethren. And verses two through four of James one, it says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance the, the issue in James is not whether faith exists, it's the maturity of faith. And when you drop down to James uh, 1 and verse 19, 18, it says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us, 
in other words, James is identifying with his audience. It was James justified. Of course he was. So his audience was too. In the, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be first fruits among his creatures. The audience is clearly justified. And then when you slip over to James uh, 4 and you take a look at verse 6, it says, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, actually, that's not the verse I wanted. I wanted to back up one to verse 5. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. So James had the spirit. They had the spirit. So I think a lot of people, when they go to the book of James, they don't do this audience analysis. And when you do the audience analysis, you see that the audience is justified before God. And so James is not answering the question that everybody's asking. How much good works do I have to have to prove I had initial faith? That's not even on James' mind. He's assuming this, the justified state of the audience for textual reasons that I've just given. Rather, what James is talking about in James 2 is, is the faith that already exists within you productive in the sense that it's more than just getting your fire insurance paid up. God wants to use your life to be a blessing to other people. And that's what he's sort of giving his audience you know, these 12 scattered tribes in the diaspora, sort of a kick in the pants over. I mean, he's not trying to get these folks justified. That's already presupposed. He's trying to get them to analyze the productive nature of their faith, the maturity of their faith, in other words. So um, I think most people start in James 2. They don't give you any background on what death meant in biblical times. Uh, they don't give you any audience analysis. And they'll just throw this verse at you, faith without works is dead. And that's a text without a context, mm -hmm. which becomes a pretext or a proof text to support a preconceived theological system, i.e. the Calvinistic doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Right. And so, so then if we jump down in James 2, because again, I feel like this is like the go-to yep. verse for yep. from the Lordship Salvation Camp. Uh, which is saying, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, which seems to completely contradict Ephesians 2, 8, 9. So yeah. how, how, do, how do we work that out within context of understanding that passage? Well, what's tricky is biblical writers can use the same words but have completely different meanings to them. So when Paul uses the word justified, typically what he means is, is you're standing before God, which would be phase first tense of salvation. When James uses the word justified here, he's not talking about phase one. He's talking about phase two. And he's talking about being justified, not in the, not before God, but in the eyes of man. As man looks at a person's faith, and says, you know, that person's faith is really productive. So um, I think half the battle there with James 2 verse 24 is understanding that the word justified doesn't always mean the same thing. Um, you know, Paul is dealing with the front end primarily. How do I get right with God initially? But as a person trusts in Christ and begins to grow and develop, uh, James is dealing with the back end of that. How does my faith that's already in me 
become productive for God is actually using me as a blessing to other people. And when you understand that, you start understanding that James and Paul are actually dealing with different uh, questions. And the mistake people make is they think James and Paul are answering the same question, but they're not. So once you understand that, then the contradiction, alleged contradiction between James and Paul disappears. And James and Paul actually become very good friends at the end of the day. It's a lot like, um, I could put it this way, uh, you've got three blindfolded men and they're touching different sides of an elephant. And one guy says, you know, touching the elephant's side, it feels like a wall. Another guy touching the elephant's feet says, I, I feel five lumps here, referring to its toes. Another guy's got his hands on the trunk and he says it feels like a tube. And when you look at all of their testimonies, it looks like they're all contradicting each other until you take the blindfolds off. And you realize that they're just touching different sides of the same animal and the contradiction disappears. And I think that's largely what's happening, you know, between James and Paul. Mm -hmm. So then, so then when we jump over to, um, to Matthew, cause that's the other one that, that everybody typically points to is, is when Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and the false prophets and that sort of thing. And I believe it's in verse 17. It says, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. So then are, is it, how, how is that played out? Cause, cause now we're dealing with like a third author per, per se, cause this is Jesus talking. So how, how do we work that passage out? Yeah, well, the key thing to understand in the Sermon on the Mount is who is who is Jesus dealing with? He's dealing with the Pharisees. And when you go over to, we don't have to turn there, but over in Matthew 12, the good tree, good fruit, all that kind of stuff, he uses in Matthew 12 to describe the Pharisees. And what he's saying here is avoid the pattern of the Pharisees. Uh, why? Because the Pharisees are the ones that are going to say in that final day, Lord, Lord, did we not? Verse 20 and verse 21. Uh, verse 21 specifically. Uh, verse 22, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Do we not in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness and lordship shall Salvation people say, well, that that's talking about people that profess faith in Christ, but didn't have enough good works to prove that their faith was authentic. And I'm saying that's not even what the passage is talking about. That has to be completely read into the passage. Jesus is not dealing with people that are professing believers in Christ. In fact, the word believe, as far as I can tell, is not even found here in these verses people quote. He's dealing with the unregenerate, unsaved Pharisees who on the day of judgment are going to plead their own works for self-righteousness, uh, thinking that good works saves them and they're going to they're in for a rude awakening. So I think he's saying avoid the, the fruit of the Pharisees and the fruit of the Pharisees is their doctrine, which was you're made right with God through human works. So I don't know, when Calvinists and Lordship Salvation people keep quoting this and applying it to professing believers in the church, you know, 
sister so-and-so didn't show up to the midweek prayer meeting, you know, she's going to be one of those on the day of judgment, but doesn't have enough good works to prove that her faith was authentic. I think they're completely uh, misusing this verse where Christ is aiming a statement at the unregenerate works oriented Pharisees. So it's basically, so basically what you're saying is it's coming back into there's, you know, before, before you become a Christian, you're under the law and that, you know, you know, you, you're trying to justify yourself through the works, but because nobody's perfect, nobody can. So that, so you're basically, you're saying that's what Jesus is talking about here. Not about not talking to believers. And this is how you justified yourself. Right. I mean, the whole context, if you go back to verse 15, there's your context. Beware of the false prophets uh, who, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Who's the them? It's the false prophets. Well, who are the false prophets he's trying to steer people away from when he gave the Sermon on the Mount? He's trying to steer them away from the works orientation of the Pharisees who are not saved to begin with, because as Mark 7, verse 13 says, they've made null the word of God through their traditions. You know, all that Mishnah and Talmudic stuff put them on a, a mindset where I've got to keep God's law to be justified. And Christ is saying that's not how you're made right with God. And he's telling people to ask in this sermon, he's telling them to ask for the transferred righteousness that only Christ can come and don't go for this uh, doctrine of the Pharisees where they teach, you know, you've got to um, do a bunch of good works to be justified. That, that's why he says, what is it in verse 20 of Matthew five, verse 20 mm-hmm. for, I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the who it's right there, the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, Good works aren't going to get you there. You need the transferred righteousness of Christ. And he's steering people away from the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, Matthew 5 sets the context for Matthew 7. And this is one of those things that, you know, it's disturbing to watch people quote this and throw it at a Christian. Uh, and I think there's there's always a time and place for you, for us all to do self-analysis. Um, you know, is my life really becoming what God wants it to be? All that kind of stuff. I'm for that. I'm just saying that's not what this text is talking about. Yeah. People wrote, they just grab, it's like the James 2 verse. You just grab it out of thin air. It's like a snowball trying to win a snowball fight. And you throw it at your opponent. And uh, people keep misquoting this verse all of the time. You know, the three rules of real estate are location, location, location. The three rules of Bible study are context, context, context. And this is the danger of systematic theologians who have uh, a preset theology. And then they go through the Bible to find verses to support their preset theology. That's what I think is happening here with Lordship Salvation and certain strands of Calvinism is they're not doing what we're doing right here, putting things back in their original context. Right, right. And so, you know, like one of the things that I was always taught growing up, and again, coming from the MacArthur crowd, I, you know, got it virtually directly from his mouth. But it's basically that if you take away lordship salvation, you're basically promoting what they call, what we call like easy believism. And, and then you're basically setting it up so that way people 
uh, may have false conversions or, you know, we look at the, we look at the church and, you know, granted, there's probably a lot of people in the church that aren't really saved, but I feel like they're, they're looking at it from the perspective of because they're not producing enough good works. And so then, which then leads us into this whole, you know, carnal Christian thing. And can you be a carnal Christian? What if like, how much fruit is enough fruit to show that you are saved? Those are kind of, I think some of the more practical questions that I feel like they look to, you know? Well, you know, in all, in all honesty, I sympathize with the concern. I mean, there is, I'm a pastor of a church myself, and there can be a very low level of Christian living. Um, to me, the answer to that is to preach more aggressively on the doctrine of sanctification, the reality of some believers are rewarded, others are not rewarded at the famous seat, etc. But you don't change the gospel. And that's the problem with Lordship Salvation is they altered the gospel, uh, which is the best news God ever gave to man. And they've sort of pr- produced a front-loading or back-loading kind of gospel. It's sort of like it's, the, it's a good diagnosis of a problem. I mean, they've diagnosed a problem really well. They've just come up with a faulty cure for it. Yeah. And so, so, so what, what ultimately, so the, ultimately what you're saying is the, the cure is preaching more in sanctification, not as much on the justification from that perspective. Yeah. I mean, if someone is, you see them in your church and they, they don't show any evidence of salvation. Uh, I would, I would ask the question, well, maybe they've never trusted in Christ. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's one the, the Lordship people say that's the only question, but I'm saying that's a possibility. So that's a legitimate possibility. Mm-hmm. Maybe they don't even have the new nature inside of them. But what, once that option is sort of exhausted, um, and you don't know exactly where people are at because they could lie to you to your face. They could tell you they've trusted in Christ and have not done it. I'm not omniscient. you know. I'm not a mind reader. But if someone tells me that they have authentically trusted in Christ, I'm of the kind to give them the benefit of the doubt and to believe them, which opens up a completely different possibility. Um, as much as the Lordship Salvation people don't like the reality, unfortunate possibility of a carnal Christian, when you study 1 Corinthians 3, particularly verses 1 through 3, it's as clear as day. Uh, there are some that are the spiritual man growing. There are some infants in Christ. And there are some that are carnal, you know, carnal in the sense of being devoted to the sin nature of the flesh. And Paul tells that last group they're going to have an unfavorable ruling at the Bamacy Judgment of Rewards. So if someone is not showing what I think is adequate works to, to demonstrate their faith, I'm thinking maybe they're not saved. And once that option is exhausted, then I'm thinking, well, maybe they're living in a state of carnality. And they, we need to give them the warnings Paul gives them here in 1 Corinthians 3 to get them out of that state of carnality. Mm-hmm. So, when, so when you're looking at somebody's life, like somebody that's in your congregation or you know something along those lines, and they're professing to be, to be a believer, at what point would you... At what point would you feel like it's worthy of questioning their salvation? Is it strictly based on works, or what What would that be based off of? Well, you know, we have examples in the natural world of people that are born, but they're developmentally delayed. 
uh, mental retardation or, I don't know, some kind of form of malnutrition. The fact that they they're, they have malnutrition or experiencing malnutrition doesn't change the fact that they're born. I mean, they're still born. And so I think there's an awful lot of people like that in, in Christendom today. They're, they're born spiritually, but they're not developing, you know, the way that God would have them to develop. And so when you see a lack of fruit of the Spirit in their lives, I mean, it, it could be that they're unsaved. Uh, but then again, it could be that they're in that category of, you know, uh, being born authentically, but in a state of developmental delay. So those are always my two possibilities. Um, you've got guys like Judas that never believed. And you've got other people like Lot that clearly did believe, but they were quenching the spirit, grieving the spirit, etc. I mean, if I didn't have an ability to quench the spirit and grieve the spirit and let sin reign in my mortal body, then why does the New Testament tell me not to do that? I mean, the fact that it tells me not to do that implies I have an ability to do that, doesn't it, as a Christian? Right. So, I don't know. Those are the two possibilities I'm looking at with people. Yeah. See, the Lordship Salvation people are very simplistic. They just, it's like a one-size-fits-all mentality. Uh, They're not developing the way they should. Therefore, they're never justified before God. And I'm saying that's a possibility. It's not the only possibility. And Mm -hmm. that's difference of opinion yeah and then I I was going to ask you too and this is going off the top of my head I don't have the passage in front of me but but there's the parable of the soils and oftentimes at least from a lot of the churches that I've you know heard preach on this passage is it's only those that were planted in the good soil that are saved whereas you know some of the others you're seeing some some evidence and then they fall away or they're choked out or whatever it is how how do we interpret that passage? Were were are virtually all of them except the ones that were that never grew at all saved, or is it only that that's planted in the good soil? Well, my um, interpretation of those that parable of the sower, Matthew thirteen, is that three of the four soils were justified before God. One of them in the cross reference, I. Luke makes it very clear that they never believed and were never saved to begin with. So one of those soils is unsaved. But when it talks about how they, it, uh, the seed went into the ground and it sprang to life, that to me is evidence of justification. Because we believe as Christians that life begins at what? We, be, we believe it begins at conception. I mean, that's what makes us pro-life, you know, in the physical world. And so there are people that have been conceived. The soil has gone into the ground. Life has begun. But because of a lack of understanding of God's word, because of a lack of discipleship, uh, whatever the case may be, the world system does a number on them. I would put Demas, you know, into that category. And so I would say that three of the four soils were justified. Uh, the, the the soil that we all think is the one clearly that was justified to me is an example of somebody who's not just justified, but making progress in the middle tense of their salvation. Two of those soils were justified, but there's no progress in the middle tense of salvation. 
And then when you look at the cross-reference in the Gospel of Luke, one of those soils, I think it's it's hard to argue was justified at all. Yeah, and so I think from – so then kind of coming into this issue from more of a practical standpoint and something that the church is facing today, which is uh, homosexuality being embraced within the church. You've got like uh, revoice and then there's the response to that, which is the God's Voice Conference and that sort of thing. Um, but how does that play out when it comes to justification? Because it seems like what we're saying is that when you're justified, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can repent from all of your sins. But clearly homosexuality is one of those things where the Bible is very distinct on whether you're going to be able to get into heaven with that kind of a sin. So how does that play out, practically speaking, on how the church should be responding to that issue? Well, I think we just need to be revealing the biblical um, information on homosexuality. I mean, to me, the Bible is very clear that heterosexuality is the norm. And anything that contradicts it, like homosexuality, is an abomination to God. I, I could find verses on that from Genesis to Revelation. And if someone wants to, you know, change the biblical position on that, to me it's like change, you know, trying to explain away the Pacific Ocean. I mean, God, God's word is very clear. Now, what if somebody is a Christian and yet they struggle with same-sex attraction? Uh, I would say this, it's possible they could be justified because I'm justified. I struggle with sins. Uh, sometimes I yield to the sins. Other times I don't. Uh, I may not be, uh, homosexuality may not be my particular area of temptation, but there's all kinds of other areas of temptation, heterosexual, lust, pornography. You know, those are things that are always pulling us, you know, in that particular direction and so just because I'm struggling with sin, I mean, that's what happens in a child of God who has the new nature and still is living in a corrupted body where they can return to the old nature at will. And we have resources that Christ has given us to not go back to the old nature, but many times we yield. And so I would take that kind of scenario. I think Paul was dealing with that in Romans 7. That's why he's saying the things I want to do, I don't do, you know, et cetera. Um, the things I want to do, I end up avoiding. And so, um, you know, very clearly, you know, you can have a justified person that struggles with sin. And so um, if someone is struggling with homosexuality, um, I would think that they still, it's still within the possibilities that they are justified. Now, if on the other hand, they're coming out and they're aggressively trying to rewrite the Bible all the time to accommodate their sin, uh, I might open the door to the possibility that maybe they were never justified before God. But then there's the possibility that they were justified before God and they're just in a state of struggle and their mind really hasn't been washed by the word as the, as Romans 12 tells us to do. Does that help at all? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Totally. And so, you know, like a little bit earlier you were, you were mentioning like the perseverance of the saints and some of the doctrines of Calvinism, you know, and that sort of thing. And you said that you used to refer to yourself as a Calvinist, but not so much anymore. Um, is it because you've changed your theological position or is it just that you don't identify with the brand of Calvinism that's out there right now? Well, the Calvinism that I was taught, particularly at Dallas Seminary, by men like Dr. Stanley Toussaint, Dr. Roy Zook, 
more indirectly by Charles Ryrie. They all called themselves either five-point or four-point Calvinists. And the way they explained it, I really had no issue with it. But today, uh, like with the Gospel Coalition and John MacArthur and Piper and the late R.C. Sproul and all these people, when they mean Calvinism, they mean a whole package of things that I was never taught and I really don't find in the Bible. Like, A, you can't believe until you're regenerated. Regeneration precedes faith. And faith is a gift, in other words. And, um, you know, uh, Spurgeon, they all claim Spurgeon. I could show you language in Spurgeon's writings where he thought that idea was totally ridiculous. He says it's like giving medicine to a man that's already well. Um, you don't, first you believe and then you're regenerated. That's the ordo salutis or order of salvation. And they also believe in double predestination where some people are elected unto life. No, no real problem with me on that, but some people are actually elected for eternal damnation. That's what they mean by double predestination. Uh, they will teach that unborn children, if they're not one of the elect, go to hell. Uh, you know, David, when his little son died as a result of the adulterous union with Bathsheba, when that son died, he was comforted and he made the statement, he will not come to me, I will go to him. Now, how would that be a comfort to David if maybe, oh my gosh, that child is not one of the elect and maybe they're in hell? And then they've got this idea of the perseverance of the saints, where it's backloading the gospel. If you don't have enough good works, whatever that is, then you were never justified before God. I could find clear verses in the Bible that contradict that. And then a lot of these people, they don't believe in the assurance of salvation. Um, kind of cycling through my notes here, I hope I can uh, find the quote by uh, John Piper. But he, uh, you know, basically does a frontal attack, you know, against uh, the assurance of salvation. And a lot of them believe that you have to die in the faith. If you don't die in the faith, then you are never one of the elect. And that's why R.C. Sproul at a Ligonier ministry conference in front of 5,000 people as one of the great stalwarts of the faith, James Boyce was dying. He says, we all need to pray that he dies in the faith because if he doesn't die in the faith, I mean, here's a man that served the Lord his whole life, written commentaries. If he doesn't die in the faith, he was never one of the elect. Here's the quote from Piper. There's no Christian can be sure that he is a true believer. Hence, there is an ongoing need to be dedicated to the Lord and to deny ourselves so that we might make it. Close quote. Uh, Arthur Pink, who these Calvinists all love, says, Readers, if there is any reserve in your obedience, then you're on your way to hell. And I've got to make a decision. Am I going to follow John Piper or the Apostle John, who recorded Christ's words? Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life, does not come into judgment but has passed out of, perfect tense, one-time action, ongoing results, has passed out of death unto life. And of course, 1 John 5, 13, these things I have written to you, 
who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I mean, compare that to Piper's quote, no Christian can be sure that he is a true believer. Hence, there is an ongoing need to be dedicated to the Lord and to deny ourselves so that we might make it. So kind of to make a long story short, the Calvinism that I was taught doesn't sound anything like what these guys here are promoting. And so, um, you know, if they just kept it as I was taught by Toussaint and Zook and other people, I wouldn't have any problem calling myself a Calvinist. But when I see what these men are saying and how far afield their theology is on the, all these points from God's word, I really don't want to be identified with that anymore. Mm-hmm. So I, I just call myself a Biblicist. I'm not Calvinistic. I'm not Arminian. I just try to follow the biblical text and context. Yeah, because it seems like, again, growing up and being in that world, one of the things that I was always taught was that, you know, like Catholicism is wrong because you'll never know if you're truly saved because you never know if you're doing enough good works and that sort of thing. But then it seems like these same guys are then turning around and, and essentially applying that same unsurety of salvation within our own Calvinistic beliefs. What, was, what, do, you, what do you think is leading to that? Well, I think Calvinism is uh, sort of repackaged Roman Catholicism for the benefit of the Protestant Church. Here's a quote from John MacArthur. Genuine assurance comes from seeing the Holy Spirit's transforming work in one's life. Well, (laughs) how much transforming has to be done? Uh, And you compare that to Roman Catholics... Uh, Here's a quote from Cardinal John O'Connor of New York. He says, quote, church teaching is that I don't know at any given moment what my eternal future will be. I can hope and pray and do my very best, but I still don't know. Pope John, Pope John II doesn't absolutely know that he will go to heaven, nor does Mother Teresa of Calcutta, unless either has a special divine revelation, close quote. I mean, that sounds an awful lot like both John MacArthur and John Piper. Mm-hmm. And what I've noticed is John MacArthur has a lot of people in his church that are ex-Catholics. And I'm wondering if the reason that they're so drawn to John MacArthur is if is because he's transferred them from one form of legalism to another. And John Calvin himself was Catholic, let's, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. And he had no ambition to start a Protestant movement. He was given the right foot of fellowship. He was kicked out of the Catholic Church. So he was start he was forced to start Protestantism. And he and also the second generation that followed him brought a lot of stuff into reform theology, into the reform movement from Roman Catholicism, like amillennialism, replacement theology, anti-Semitism, infant baptism. And one of the things they brought into it also was, I think, to a large extent, a works-oriented soteriology. So I think when you you brought up the point, you know, there's some interesting connections between Reformed theology and Roman Catholicism. I think you're actually onto something there. I actually wrote a little book about this called Ever Reforming and how the Protestant Reformation really didn't fix everything. And we have to be always in a state of reformation, following the reformers' principles of sola scriptura. But everything we believe needs to be defended from the Bible, 
not from what a bunch of people at a conference hear some celebrity say. Yeah, for sure. And so, so, so then when, when we're looking at that, is, does that, does that make, and again, I don't want to put words in your mouth or words in anybody's mouth or try to put slap labels in anybody, but does that make this Lordship salvation, you know, belief, is that like false teaching? Is that like error that needs to be avoided? Like what, where do we draw the line on that kind of a thing? Well, Lordship Salvation, the way we've defined it, which I think is a works-oriented justification, is probably one of the worst uh, errors that can be committed theologically within Christendom or Christianity. Because it's the very thing that Paul put folks under a curse for, an anathema, Galatians 1, 6 through 9, for, for advocating. So I think it's the worst of the worst. And the problem with it is... If the Mormons taught this, and to a large extent they do, salvation by works, we would all recognize it. But because it comes from our trusted leaders and people within our camp and people that sell their stuff in our Christian bookstores, etc., your average person really doesn't recognize it for what it is. And that's why really the free grace movement you know, started uh, sort of as a reaction to all this kind of stuff. I mean, the person that really brought it into modern-day evangelicalism was John MacArthur. And it goes back to his popularity. He, he didn't invent it. I could show you many, many Lordship Salvation teachers before John MacArthur got hold, hold of it. But he took it and he popularized it to a level and normalized it to a level and mainstreamed it to a level, which probably couldn't have been done by anybody else given MacArthur's uh, sphere of influence and visibility. And I, I think it's a damnable heresy to teach stuff like that. And I think it should be, we, we should react to it the same way we would react to a Mormon that teaches the same thing. Even though it's tricky because I like John MacArthur on an awful lot of issues. Uh, there are many books John MacArthur has written where I've been thumbs up all the way. And the problem is people like him on one issue and they're blind to some of his bad theology on another issue. And it's this idea that we give someone a blanket endorsement because we like something they've done. And in the process, what snuck the, the camel that's got its nose under the tent is really a false, a false works-oriented gospel called Lordship Salvation. And by the way, this doesn't get you a lot of friends for talking this way mm -hmm. because you're slaying uh, golden calves within Christianity. So you know, you're, you're, you're going after someone that people have sent money to, supported, liked on a lot of different levels. And one other thing, I don't even think John MacArthur uh, believed this when he got saved. I think this is new realizations that he's come to, primarily by studying the Puritan writers, not so much studying the Bible, but the Puritans. I have a quote here where he calls the Puritans and Reform Camp. He says it became hero worship to him. And I think he was struggling with this issue of a low level of sanctification within the body of Christ at the same time. And he sort of went to this as a solution. And in the 1980s, you know, brought it into the body of Christ. And I think the church universal um, around the world has been damaged because of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and see, cause like from my end, I feel like I would still say that I believe in Lordship salvation, but I don't, but 
I don't define it in the same way that MacArthur and these other guys define it, which then makes everything tricky because everybody's using the same terminology and all that kind of stuff. Because, like, I've always felt like you can't just believe in Jesus as your Savior. He has to be your Lord as well. But to me, it's more of a I'm choosing to follow after him. That doesn't mean that I'm necessarily re- have the ability to repent of every single sin or know even what every single sin is, which it seems like that's kind of like what they're saying, you know, to a certain degree. Um, but well, real quick, you did use a term earlier that I wanted to respond to, but of course, but my mind used the term easy beliefism. Mm -hmm. Now you go through the Bible. I can't find the words easy beliefism. I I think biblically you either believe or you don't. Uh, for example, when I get on a plane, I could be very nervous about, you know, the crew, the maintenance of the plane, the fueling of the plane. Uh, I've been on some, a lot of plane rides that <clears throat> it's obvious the people running the plane were sort of amateurs. But I still got on the plane, despite my anxiety. So either you get on the plane or you don't get on the plane. You believe or you don't believe. And I don't think there is such a thing in the Bible. Everybody quotes James 2 again. Maybe we could go back there at some point. Right. But I don't think there is such a thing in the Bible for a human being to be involved in, in easy beliefism or faith that's not real. Either you have faith at the point of justification or you don't. I think biblically those are the only two options. Yeah. And so – no. well, so I was going to ask kind of following up on that a little bit too is – so when uh, when somebody's in the church and then they come to a point where they're like, you know, I've been going to church and I've been calling myself a Christian for a very long time. And now all of a sudden I realize that it never was. What is it? Because clearly they thought that they believed in Christ. Clearly they thought that they were justified. So at, what is it that kept them from being justified at that point? Well, I mean, I thought I was justified because I was an acolyte in the Episcopalian Church for the first 16 years of my life. I mean, there's all kinds of people that have false ideas about all kinds of things in the Bible. And, you know, it's just a matter of sitting people down and explaining to them what the gospel is. Jesus did the whole thing in our behalf. And we trust in what he has done. And if you trust in that right now, period, end of statement, you're justified before God. And once I'm convinced that a person has done that or is doing it, um, and if they're ambiguous about it, I say, well, can you do it right now? You know, forget what happened, you know, when you were five years old. What do you believe right now? Once I'm convinced that's happened, and I generally take people's word for it, we then move into the growth and discipleship, you know. So anyway, that's kind of how I handle those kind of issues. Right, for sure. And so, so, but I feel like when um, the the pushback from the lordship side would be that kind of giving people, I don't, I don't know the right way to say it, but basically kind of giving people that out of, uh, well, they have, you know, they haven't repented sin wise, they haven't, um, you know, changed their life drastically, or because th- that's that's the other thing that I've always heard is that. They say that when you become a Christian, your life will change drastically, and then you'll be continually becoming more like Christ. And then, and then if you're over a period of time, you're not becoming more Christ-like, then that that's clearly evidence that you're not saved. And so if somebody does become a Christian, will there be for sure sanctification, or is that still – there's still a possibility that sanctification won't happen? 
I would say sanctification is desirable, but it's not automatic. Okay. And that's the difference of perspective. The Lordship Salvation people would say it has to be automatic. But when you get into Ephesians 4 through 6, you know, Ephesians 1 through 3, there's no commands for us. Just tells us what we have in Christ in terms of our riches. You get into Ephesians 4 through 6 after you get past the word therefore, Ephesians 4, 1, there's about, what, 38 commands. I mean, there's an awful lot of things God asks us to do to grow in him. Ephesians 4 through 6 tells us to do 38 things. And I don't think a person can do that until they've studied the book of Ephesians. First of all, what their source of power is for obeying those commands. And secondly, they have to actually look at the commands and actually make a decision of the will to start implementing those things. So I think there's an awful lot of people that have received the riches in Christ, Ephesians 1 through 3, but have never followed the Greek imperatives there, 38 of them in Ephesians 4 through 6. And that requires discipleship. It requires mentorship. It requires being in the right environment with the right kind of pastor teacher, you know, to explain these things to you. And so there are an awful lot of people that have been born but are developmentally delayed in the physical world. And I think the same is true of people in the spiritual world. So they, the Lordship Salvation people would revile at that and say it's automatic. But my question is, if sanctification is automatic, then why are there 38 commands for us to follow? I mean, why doesn't it just automatically take off and happen? I mean, I've got to start making decisions as a Christian, whether I'm going to grow in Christ's likeness or not. If, if I didn't have to start making decisions, then these commands would be unnecessary. We would just need Ephesians 1 through 3, and the Lord could have spared us from Ephesians 4 through 6. Yeah, and you know, I, I feel like also, to a certain degree, a lot of this divide is coming back to the belief in Calvinism and God's sovereignty and that sort of thing. Because I know that um, within the, like the MacArthur camp, it's salvation happens exclusively by God. It basically has nothing to do with us. It's up to God saving us. You know, we're just responding to God saving us. Whereas it seems like the way, what you're talking about is that we're, um, we're placing our faith in Christ, which is then causing us to be regenerated. And then they would say that sanctification is all a work of Christ and a work of the Holy Spirit. Whereas it seems like you're saying that sanctification is we're making that decision to become sanctified, obviously through the Holy Spirit and that sort of thing. Do you feel like that's part of the, the split over this is just coming back to the idea of Calvinism? Yeah. I mean, they, they'll wax eloquent about the sovereignty of God. To my knowledge, I believe in the sovereignty of God, too. <laughs> But there's another theological reality, and that's the fact that we are made in God's image. Right there in Genesis 1, uh, the imago die, I guess is how you say that, the image of God. What does that mean? It means a lot of things, but one of the things it means is I have volition. God created me that way. For the sovereignty of God to just sort of take off, and all of a sudden I find myself saved, regenerated, before I've even believed, and I'm automatically producing fruit, is would be an example of God overriding our image-bearing status. And so I think God has designed salvation in such a way that volition is required. 
and he won't accept a good work from us. Romans 4 and verse 5 says there's only one thing he's going to accept. It says, to the one who does not work but believes. So in the mind of God, believing is non-meritorious. So one thing I can do, which is non-meritorious in the mind of God, according to Romans 4 and verse 5. So my understanding is this. The Spirit convicts me of my need to do this. I don't think I can come to that realization on, on my own because I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. So I need the enablement of God in the sense of conviction or persuasion, John 16.7-11. through 11. But the Spirit has come to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then it goes on in that passage and it defines each of those phrases. Sin, that's the Greek noun, hamartia, singular noun, sin because they do not believe. So I have to come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and believe. God's not going to believe for me. That's why I don't think faith is a gift. And then once I have the new nature inside of me, God says to me as his child, the same thing I say to my physical child and the same thing you say to your children. Now you got to grow up. You know, you got to learn to, you know, not poop in your diapers. You got to learn to sit on the toilet. You've got to learn to, you know, eat meat and cut your food and take the trash out and mow the lawn and all the things that are necessary to become a, a mature, functional human being. Um, those things don't automatically just take off. Those are things we have to be taught. And that's essentially what uh, our growth in Christ is. And, if God is just going to override my will and get me justified and cause me to grow automatically, whether I want to or not, or whether I understand the word of God or not, or follow the word of God or not, to me, it's overriding who we are as he's designed us as image bearers, which, and part of that involves volition. So I do believe in the sovereignty of God, but I also believe there's other theological concepts at work here, like our image bearing status And I find that the very aggressive Calvinist movement today is not acknowledging those other ideas. They just have a very simplistic sovereignty of God mindset. And they'll never talk about what I just talked about, you know, the image bearing status of us as human beings. Mm -hmm. And and it seems like because you were just mentioning how faith isn't a gift in the sense of God's not overriding and basically implanting faith in us. And I feel like, just as you were saying that, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 came back into my head because I feel like that might be part of the disconnect as well, just in general with um, with the separation over this issue. Because you've got, you know, for by grace you're saved through faith, not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. So when it's saying that it's a gift of God, what is the gift that is being referred to here? Well, the key thing is to understand this in Greek. This was not written in... Um... English. Mm -hmm. And in Greek, genders are a big deal. And in Greek, there's a gender difference between uh, gift and faith. So those are different genders. There's a great article on this on the Middletown Bible Church website by George Zeller called Is Faith a Gift? And he explains it probably better than anybody else. And when you look up gift uh, throughout the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament, it never refers to faith. It couldn't refer to faith because the the, the two aren't modifying each other. 
in the passage you just quoted because of different genders, uh, the gift is salvation and everything that salvation encompasses. That's the gift, not the faith. So you, you, you know, it's like a present uh, under the tree uh, or not even under the tree, a birthday present. My daughter's going to be turning uh, 13 uh, next month. So I'm going to have a teenager in the house. And so I go out and I get her a present. Well, the present doesn't do you any good until she actually receives it, right? She's got to take it and open it, etc. And that's how it is with God. We have to receive the present that he's given us. The problem is God won't allow us to receive it on the basis of pride. Hey, I got this present because look what I earned. So God requires that we receive it by faith alone, which is the one thing you can receive from God, which is non-meritorious. Romans chapter 4 and verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes. So I have to, now I, I understand it's enablement, it's conviction, but at some point I have to exercise my volition because I'm an image bearer and actually trust in Christ. And that is the equivalent in the mind of God of receiving the gift. And the gift is salvation and everything that it encompasses. So I completely disagree with how they're handling Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You know, by making that a, a uh, uh, by making faith a gift. And I completely disagree with how they're handling Ephesians 2.10, which says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And walk in them, uh, to, to my remembrance, people might want to double check me on this, is in the subjunctive mood, which is the mood of possibility. They're coming along and saying it's automatic, and I'm saying, no, it's a possibility by virtue of the subjunctive mood in uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, that we might walk in it. In other words, maybe I'll walk in it, maybe I won't. Maybe I'll grow up and mature, maybe I won't. But the choice is mine. And the resources to go the right path are mine. But I've got to exercise volition on a moment-by-moment basis uh, to grow the way Christ would have me grow. So I've got to exercise volition to get saved, justified. I've got to exercise volition moment-by-moment to grow correctly. Mm-hmm. And so so when we're, when we're looking at just this, this issue in general, and they're, they're, and they're preaching – essentially all these things that you've been refuting here, does this mean that they are essentially preaching a false gospel? Is this something that, that people need to be saved out of, in your opinion? Or is it something that it's it's an error that they can still be saved, but it's something that needs to be corrected? Well, I, I would answer that. If anybody is trusting in any, any good work besides what Christ did for them, if it's faith plus anything, then that's a false gospel. And that's a probably a pretty strong, you know, people want to talk about false conversions. You know, their definition of a false conversion is someone that has faith, but they don't have enough works to prove they have the right kind of faith. Well, how about this for a false conversion? Someone that thinks faith alone plus something else is what justifies them. Uh, I think that's a false gospel, and I think that anybody thinks it's faith plus something is 
I would say, not justified before God as we speak. And they need to be given the correct, they need to be evangelized if that's what they think. Mm -hmm. And and there's a high likelihood, you know, now I I understand that someone could, 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 uh, God works all of the time, despite our imperfect presentations of the gospel. You know, I get that. Um, you know, the evangelist could say X and a person could hear Y because they filtered out certain things. So I think some people are justified before God despite faulty presentations of the gospel, but other people are not because it's faith plus works. And you have to understand something about works. What does he say here? Lest any man should boast. Fallen humanity loves to hear about good works because that gives me bragging rights. So if I can kind of strut into heaven as proud as a peacock, because I've trusted in Christ, but I've also done a lot of other good stuff, to me that's a works-oriented gospel, opening the door to a, a, a lack of salvation possibility to such a person. Yeah, you know, and it's just it, it's really weird because I feel like the criticism constantly of the Catholic Church is that they're not saved because it's faith plus works. But then it seems like this is what they're implementing. And, you know, the thing is for me is that I would still consider consider myself a Calvinist. And I believe in lordship salvation as I defined it earlier, not often as they define it, you know, constantly where, you know, you have to have works in order to be justified and all, the, all this craziness. Um but then how, how does this come into play with – because you would mentioned John Piper a little bit earlier as well in him preaching final justification. So it's almost like justification is happening after sanctification. Like that just seems so far beyond the realm of possibility that that's getting into complete false mm-hmm. gospel, right? Yeah, there, there is no such thing in the Bible. Verse I read earlier – where the Lord says, truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has, present tense in Greek, eternal life, does not come into judgment, but has passed out of, perfect tense, it's already happened, one-time action, ongoing results, but has passed out of death, uh, passed out of death unto life. It doesn't say here, if you believe in him, then maybe you'll have eternal life upon final justification. And maybe you'll pass out of death unto life at final justification. I mean, the whole idea of final justification is an abomination. I mean, it directly contradicts what the Lord Jesus said in John 5, verse 24. You're justified at the point of faith alone in Christ alone. And this idea that you kind of go through your life and you really don't know if you're justified till the very end, to see if you've got enough good works. How does that square with John 5, 24? And by the way, if you believe in final justification, it's sort of like the Muslims. You know, you kind of get to the end of your life and good deeds outweigh the bad, and you're not really sure if you're going to make it in or not. I mean, how is that any different than Islam, final justification, or any other works-oriented religion? And John Piper, I wish I had the exact quote. You know, I could find it for if you're interested or your listeners, but, you know, he makes the statement that faith really involves a hundred things. Well, he just redefined, he just rewrote the Bible. 
Abraham believed God and it was credited unto him as righteousness. I mean, it's so simple. God has made it so simple. And yet pride is so strong that we think we can add something to it. Because if I can add something to it, who gets to brag? I'm the one that gets to brag. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll, I'll look up that quote and I'll, I'll, I'll link it in the bottom uh, yeah. underneath the video. So that way people can pull that up and that sort of thing. Um, but so, so kind of as we're wrapping up a little bit, but what would you, what would you want to say to somebody who, let's say they're believing a lot of these thing issues that we've been talking about, or, you know, they believe in Lordship salvation as defined by a lot of these extreme Calvinists today, where they're taking it too far to say that your works have to be there. And that if not, then you're not, what would you say to somebody who's just a follower and they're like, what, what do I do now? Well, I would, I would say B I B L E. That's the book for me. I wouldn't believe anything anybody says. I don't care how many people they get to come to their conferences and how many study Bibles they wrote and how many radio stations they're on. We got to get away from this hero worship and we got to do what the Protestant reformers told us to do. Sola Scriptura. Don't believe any, don't believe Jeff either or myself, unless you can find it in God's word. And once you become a student of the word, in context, I think a lot of these things we've been talking about will be pretty clear. Can I head off the pass on one issue here? Yeah. I made the statement earlier that the Bible really doesn't teach easy beliefism, and, and people are going to quote James 2, you know, the demons believe but tremble. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another verse that's completely mutilated by people. Uh, first of all, it, it doesn't mention Jesus here in James 2. What it says is the, the demons believe there is one God. They're not believing in Jesus, these demons. They're believing in monotheism, which obviously is not enough to save anybody. And number two, the plan of salvation is not open to the demons. So to compare what the demons believe or don't believe to what we must do in terms of belief to be saved is to make a apples and oranges uh, comparison. Mm-hmm. So that's just another common example of how the book of James, you know, is being abused by people. Yeah, for sure. And so, well, you know, I really kind of wanted to, you know, thank you for sitting down and kind of, we can kind of tackle a lot of these issues. I feel like it's, it's really important. I feel like people on both sides don't usually talk to each other about it. They just, they're in their own little camp, they huddle together and then they accuse the other side and then run back to their own little camp. And so I hope, you know, just in general, we can have more of these kinds of conversations just within the church. I feel like it's important. And I feel like if the arguments are there and the biblical support is there, either side, whichever is true, can win can win over the other side if we'd have more conversations like this. I completely agree. That's why I like your show. You know, it's subtitled Bringing Back the Art of Conversation. You know, this is not like Hannity and Combs, Fox News, where it's a screaming match. Mm-hmm which is how these Twitter wars go. Right. Just people yelling at each other and a lot of us uh, feeling like we've lost our progressive sanctification. <laughs> we get involved in all that stuff. And so we just withdraw because it doesn't, you know, it's it's just a bunch of yelling and screaming and insulting people, which I don't think is our calling either. So anyway, I just appreciate the civility of it and the tone of the discussion and I think you're right. It's we don't have much of this going on today. It's a lot of gotcha, soundbite stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think it gets dangerous when we pursue victory. 
instead of truth. Mm-hmm. I mean, the goal with a lot of us becomes, I want to win the argument rather than what does the Bible say? And I know in my flesh, I can get like that, you know, like anybody else. I don't want to be that way. Mm-hmm. So back to your question, you know, I would just encourage people to, to go back to the word of God and see if these things are so. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think, and I think too, kind of like what you were saying before as well with like hero worship is, and I, and I say this over and over and I get, and I get a lot of flack for it, but at the same time, it's like, don't take what I'm saying and apply it as truth. Don't take what John MacArthur's saying. Don't take what you're saying. Use what people are saying as a springboard for more study. And then take what they're saying, compare it with scripture, get into scripture. Because if you believe something, it better be because it's what's in the Bible, not because Andy Wood says it or John MacArthur or Jeff Dornick or whoever it is. So that, that's been like my thing. I get a lot of flack for it, but you know, I feel like it's true. I don't know why you should get flack for it. I mean, it's being a Berean. That, that's what I thought. <laughs> I mean, and isn't that what the Reformation was all about? It was mm-hmm. a self-scriptorum you know, movement. And what's happened is we've taken the writings of the reformers or the popular teachers. You know, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. We get into this hero worship stuff, and we elevate their words over the Bible. And we're contradicting what the Protestant Reformation, the key principle of the Protestant Reformation, you know, was all about. So I completely concur. I think uh, what you're doing is a good, good thing, and I think you ought to have people on with different points of view. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. that, that's that's definitely the plan. Yeah, for sure. Well, definitely. Again, thank you so much for sitting down. We can go, you know, go over all these issues, and down the road we'll have to have to do it again sometime, and we'll pick another topic and and run with it. Good. All right. Very good. Enjoyed it. Definitely. Thanks so much. All right. We'll see you next time. Okay. See ya. live a long, healthy life if you're HIV positive. With the current treatments, we can get patients down to being undetectable. The array of options is so much greater today. U equals U. Undetectable equals untransmittable. If someone who's HIV positive, they're taking their medication, they're undetectable, they're not able to pass HIV to their partners. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Your HIV treatment is their prevention. Get more information at doitforyoumc.org. The HIV epidemic is not over. HIV is still here. The face of HIV is so diverse. The biggest thing to reduce HIV stigma is just to talk about it. Testing and PrEP and HIV treatment and how effective it is today. Undetectable equals untransmittable. Whether you're positive or negative, there's not a wrong door. Whether it's testing or whether it's treatment, do it for you, Montgomery County. Learn more about HIV testing, treatment, and prevention at doitforyoumc.org.